Now, you have like the most visually Icelandic name I've ever seen. Really? <laughs> well, it's the, uh, I don't know what the letter is. It's the PB as yeah. one letter. That's a very unique shape to me. Yes, I think it's it's actually only used in Icelandic as far as I know, but it's called Thot. Well, actually, let's go back. So how do you pronounce your entire name? <laughs> so it's pronounced Kolbrún Thóra Löve. Okay, I would never have gotten that from what I saw. No. Wait, pronounce the last name again? Löve. Okay, I can go with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, that's uh, Danish actually. All right. Yeah. Uh, my name my name my last name is supposed to have the two dots over the o as well. Really? We found that out. Yeah, we we did some genealogy recently and we found that prior to emigrating to the United States, our last name D O L S had the the two dots over the o. Okay, so is it from Scandinavia or? That, the farthest we can go back currently is Germany. <laughs> but uh, some of our family then goes back to Finland beyond that. So yes, quite right. possibly. Yeah. The Icelandic letter, the thought, it's, it's, you can imagine it as just a TH. So like this or that, you know. I was imagining it as a pub, pub, <laughs> like a P and a B together somehow. Yeah. But I guess that that's not right. So anyways, back to you. Yeah. So you are a designer and an artist. Yes. So give me a little like lowdown on what it is you do these days. These days. I'm a designer and an artist, and I also teach quite a bit at the art university here in Iceland. And I work freelance as a designer, so I... Basically, just try to make a living doing what I do. I work on my own projects as well, which is the more sort of artistic part of my practice. It's best when I can sort of integrate the two or the three, the teaching as well. So I try to make as much time as I can doing artistic work. As we all do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that can be challenging, of course. Yes. Do you have like spouses and children and all that? Yeah, yeah. I have a girlfriend named Karen and a stepchild called Freya. She is 12. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's better than like an infant. That takes a lot more time, I would imagine. I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, I don't have the experience, but I would imagine. But it, I think it's a different kind of attention. Both is its own thing, you know, I would imagine. I was incredibly like selfish and self-centered before I got married, and now I'm I am forced to not be. <laughs> Though, yeah. if I had the choice, I would be, but because I'm an artist and and I am that way. But <laughs> you know, there are certain life things that you suddenly like. Okay, fine. There are things you have to do for the betterment of the family. Right. Yeah. Do you have many? No, just a wife. No children yet. Okay. Yeah. Yet soon. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, we moved to the Czech Republic because the Czech Republic has this amazing thing. Uh, Czech citizens, if, they, if they're women, it, this is not true for men for paternity leave, but for maternity leave, they get three years paid maternity leave. Three years? Three years. That's insane. Yes. <laughs> In a good way. I know. And that's why we were like, okay, we should go there to have a child and then when that three years is done then we'll leave yeah we recently had this discussion about these laws here and i think it's six months each of the parents and then they split another six months 
So it's quite less than than in the Czech Republic. That's far more than the United States, though. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. I could not believe it was three years paid by the government. Yeah. <laughs> well, you need time to make a foundation with new people, you know. I am in no way disagreeing with their choice to do this. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. fabulous. Yeah. I, mean, I wish, you know, there's so many things like I've lived in the United States and the Middle East and now in Europe. There's so many like little aspects of each culture that I'm like, I wish I could find a country that believes in this part of this country, culture, this part of this culture, and this part of this culture. That mm -hmm. would be an amazing place to live. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found it? No, 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 I have not. No, but I'm still looking. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm working on it. I have to admit, I'm very enamored with Scandinavia at this moment uh -huh. um, because of a, I love the cold, and b, I love their support for the arts yeah. in comparison to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it's quite good the support for the arts. It makes it easier when you're trying to, you know, support yourself and do stuff. Yeah, yeah. There, there's all kinds of grants, all kinds of programs and stuff. I know. Yeah, it's it, it's very envious from my point of view. Yeah, yeah. I used to live in the U.S. when I did my undergrad, and like, of course, I was just uh, doing my education, so I wasn't really solo working. But as I could sort of understand, then it's it's quite less, or at least it's different. Maybe you have to be more established in a sense to be able to get this sort of support. Yeah, it's the boy. Well, how did I like, give an overview of my impression? But my basic impression is is that in the United States, it's very capitalistic driven. So it's about sales versus necessarily like quality, and it's also very much a cult of personality. So it's very much about having a brand name and and being a brand and being known by the right people and showing the right galleries in order to be seen as quality. And mm -hmm. that sort of is very sad to me because it has nothing to do with the, neither of those things have to do with the merit of your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, I think it can be good to sort of possess these qualities to be able to, you know, build a brand and work with sort of those aspects. But I think a lot of artists and also a lot of artists that are really good and make really strong work, they don't necessarily possess these qualities. So then they kind of go unnoticed, which can be sad. I mean, some of the most amazing artists throughout history have gone unnoticed. But I mean, but totally. these days it's become so important to become a brand and an ambassador of your work and and a personality and a... And a ugh, it, uh, I, I say this ironically, I know, because I run a podcast and so I should be doing all this stuff, but I'm so bad at all this shit. So like, it's, it's exhausting, like kind of these days, because like when I was a kid, what, 30 some odd years ago, the, you know, when I was in school, our teachers were teaching us like, oh, it's this way and it's this way and it's this way. And like, everything has changed like nothing is the way our teachers thought it was anymore right yeah that and then there's social media stuff like this that you couldn't really like i think there's there's no way of imagining that when that doesn't exist because it's just a totally different thing it's a new thing 
And it's a thing that I feel like has caused more problems in the arts than it has solved. Right. Yeah, I think I agree in, in, a, in a sense. I think, I mean, I think it's also a platform that makes it possible for people that don't have a platform to, you know, share their stuff. But it, but it is problematic, of course. But also, I think the internet is sort of like that as well. You know, I think it presents us with new sort of things to talk about, which is also good when you're making art because it's just, yeah, material to sort of analyze and and, and use. But then it's also a, a totally different thing that's controlled by, you know, big companies, you know. And algorithms. And algorithms, I have this yeah. great disdain for the algorithms. <laughs> I mean, well, because like in the old days, it was popularity and like whether or not you had social status is what made basically, you know, an artist was great because some person of social status said that they're of quality and therefore then they became collected. Mm -hmm. Now there's no, that doesn't work anymore. Like I could get, I don't know, Jerry Salt. Okay. Yeah. Jerry Saltz is a bad example, but like some famous collector to collect my work and if they don't post it on their social media and then it becomes part of the algorithm, then that me being in that collection is almost useless. Yeah. Like it's the, it's transformed the entire arts industry into a cult of personality and celebrity branding and all this stuff, which I am not good at. I hear you. <laughs> I, I'm the same. Nor did I ever want to participate in. That's why I went into the arts. Yeah, exactly. And it's also this sort of snowballing effect. You know, if you if you pick up some sort of steam, you know, in this social media thing, then it's way easier for you to continue on that track, you know. But it's very difficult to sort of get on that track to begin with. Well, it's also a bit of a catch-22 is because if you get onto social media and you get known for something, it's really hard to ever change that something. So yeah. like, then you're known for that thing for the rest of eternity. Yeah. <laughs> That's not good either because we need to grow and, and sort of be, get better and different, you know, go down different paths. Yeah, totally. And also like speaking of the algorithms, I think – and like comparing it with the past, I think it's also sort of interesting to think about this in the sense that there's, yeah, yeah, there's a certain bias in algorithms that we sort of, when we think about the past, we sort of forget that there was also this bias. It was just presented differently. So the thing, the people that were telling other people what's important and who is good and who is bad, they also possessed this bias, but maybe it just wasn't as sort of all-consuming and powerful as it is now. Yes. Well, it was as all-consuming. It was just, it was what, European and American white men, just straight men that totally. were the ones who defined history and defined the art world. And now it is substantially more open and egalitarian in many ways, but it's also, but like the sheer volume of it all is just daunting. Like just to try and even find guests for this podcast. I'm like, I can get anybody, I can ask anybody in the world. So it's like too many choices. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of this bias thing, no, we were just, I just had this discussion the other day about like, imagine how many women, for example, that have had like great talent and have done amazing things 
imagine how many of them have sort of gone through their lives and passed without anybody knowing about anything that they did millions. because of this. Yeah, millions, endless. I know. Well, I mean, it, and you could say that about any. Well, quite honestly, you could say that about anything not white, white, cook, you know, white male, yeah. straight. European American, like I mean, there's so many things throughout history and even today that are still not given the same opportunities as, well, I don't know, as they should be. I guess totally. It's very unfortunate. I mean, bias is both, you know, sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious, but either way. And then, of course, now it's a biased algorithm. So now it's an artificial intelligence that's biasing again against or for us. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, on the other hand, it's also, you know, like we discussed, a platform. Here in Iceland, there was recently sort of a a new wave of the Me Too movement. Women and all kinds of people just sharing their stories on Twitter, mostly. And I'm not really sure in what context that would have been possible, if not for social media. So then it's also sort of a, a vehicle for change or at least some voices to be heard. At the Arab Spring would be another good example yeah. of a positive outcome of social media. So like there are good aspects to it. I just fixate on the arts part. Though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess we're here to talk about art. <laughs> well, but it's so hard to use it. Yeah. Like I remember when so search engine optimization was like the big thing. And like I've sort of realized that nobody fucking cares about that anymore. Like it doesn't matter. Uh-huh. Like it really doesn't matter anymore, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Does it? You do design. Well, not that kind of design. Okay. Well, let's go <laughs> back to you. What kind of design do you do? <laughs> well, I do graphic design mostly. I work a lot in television. I work for the Icelandic public broadcasting station but i'm also a freelance designer so i do all kinds of stuff i work a lot with recently with this investigative journalist program which is basically just about yeah investigative journalism investigating what like murders drug addiction like what investigating like cases no it's 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 news-based Okay, I was thinking like private investigator or like medical investigations. No, but that would be exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it would. Yeah. So, okay. But, okay. I always wondered like, so when people say they do graphic design for TV, so that means you're doing like the graphics, let's say, for the news kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. That goes up with it. That's the kind of stuff. Yeah. And also for TV shows and, and, all kinds of stuff. But then I also teach quite a bit at the art university. Which we will talk about at length. Yeah. (laughs) And that's sort of maybe more in tandem with my actual artistic practice. So I kind of, it kind of, my practice kind of splits in two ways. It's the more practical, you know, design stuff that you need to make money and pay the bills. But then there's the sort of idea based and the non-practical stuff. And then the teaching, you know, and that, I feel like that's, that sort of goes in the same category. All right. Teaching. I love talking about teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm also a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so tell me, give me a little, okay. So where do you teach in, in Iceland? Is it a a private institution, a public institution? Is it a college, a university? like, Like, give me a sense of the school itself. Yeah. It's the Icelandic University of the Arts. 
and I'm a, I guess you would call it a guest lecturer in, in, in English. Um, a guest lecturer would be somebody basically the equivalent of like an adjunct who sort of comes in whenever they're, they have time. Right. Yeah. So sort of like a freelance teacher in a sense. Yeah. 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 So they don't have to pay you health insurance or retirement benefits. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's the Icelandic university of the arts is basically the only art university in Iceland. I mean, it's quite, it's quite a small country. I teach it mostly in the Master of Design and in the Design Department, in the BA Graphic Design, mostly recently. All kinds of focus, but design-based. When you say design-based, so like I know of people who teach 2D design, 3D design, graphic design, packaging design. So they get, give me a little more specifics than that. It depends on the department, but I, for example, in the MA design, it's very focused on sort of context and I wouldn't say theory, but it's idea-based. So it's not really focusing on sort of the product that you're making. It's more focusing on what you're trying to say and in what context you're trying to fit your practice in. That's sort of where I come in and give my feedback, you know, so it's not really about sort of nurturing technical talent. It's more about, you know, being in this sort of dialogue with students. If that makes sense. It does. What's your favorite font? <laughs> My favorite font. Is it possible to, to answer? I have two favorite fonts, but they change over time. Okay. So what I, is it? I, I have, I, my current favorite font is Rallway or Railway. Uh -huh. It's a lovely, very sort of slightly contemporary uh, sans serif font. Right. Yeah. I'm a snob about good fonts. I hate yeah. but mostly it's not that I love good fonts, it's that I hate bad fonts. I, I mean I can be a fan of bad fonts in the right context though. But but if it's the right context, then it's not a bad font. Then it's not a bad font, yeah. Yeah. I mean it, there's there's I guess I should rephrase appropriate fonts. Right. Yeah. So anything in the right context is appropriate, I guess. Yes, except Comic Sans and Papyrus, which are never appropriate. <laughs> well, wasn't Papyrus used in, what was it, Avatar? Yes. In the official sort of promo material? Yes, and I still say it's inappropriate. Yeah, no, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I liked the movie. It was a lot of fun. Uh -huh. But I think that he could have, like, for all the money he threw at that movie, he could have freaking made his own font, too. That's totally correct. Yeah. But speaking of comic sense, I, I read the other day that it's actually really good for dyslexic people. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder why. I think it's something about the roundness of the shapes and the fact that they seem, the, the individual letters seem a bit off when compared to each other. Yeah. I would imagine through lack of similarity, it yeah. might help them kind yeah. of thing. So they, yeah. yeah, so it kind of, each letter stands out in a sense because it doesn't really match anything that's standing next to it. Okay, fine. Comic Sans has <laughs> one purpose. There. No, but I, I, I agree with you. All right. So teaching, I'm fascinated about, like, I'm very disillusioned with the con con current academic structure as a whole with their whole emphasis on hiring people as adjuncts or guest lecturers versus mm -hmm. hiring full-time professors. Mm -hmm. That's one part. But also that I don't really believe 
this is going to this is I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this kind of shit, but I don't believe we're really truly preparing the next generation as well as we could. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I can see where you're coming from, and I think it's probably quite accurate in the uh, in the American context. I would assume it's been a while since I've been since I've been there. And nothing has changed except that they're just hiring more adjuncts and they're meeting more government standardization in their teaching. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in Europe it's different, but I do think, I mean, I I think this, this kind of, because it is a capitalist sort of focus. And I think that's something that is the same throughout, you know, everywhere. But that's a huge problem. I mean, I didn't even think of that. But like the fact that, okay, here, I'll give you a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. I was teaching at a university recently, and they they came back to me and they said, yeah, um, we're not going to hire you again next semester because our students, weren't, they didn't enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't remember what where enjoyment of education was like a criteria for education. You're supposed to be learning but they they saw the students as customers mm-hmm. and, and they, so they they tried to make the customers happy versus actually educating them yeah totally and so i was happy to leave that school when they told me that i was like fuck you all right <laughs> like, and, i want no part of that and also like when i think about my own education the times when i felt the worst and was the most frustrated were the times when I was actually progressing and when I was actually being challenged and when I was actually learning. So I do think I do agree with this, that if the focus is to be entertained or to enjoy yourself, and that be- it depends on how you think about enjoying yourself, you know, if it's about entertainment or feeling comfortable, then then I don't think that you're progressing. Well, I mean, there are plenty of workshops and other things like that. You can go to have fun and enjoy and learn things. And and those are great for that. But like universities are, I mean, (laughs) maybe I'm just old in this way, but like you're supposed to suffer. You're supposed (laughs) to have difficulties. You're supposed to have like mental breakdowns and cry and say like, what am I doing with my life? What does my art mean? Like, that's what like that's the process of going through that as far as i'm concerned yeah and it it's a process because this is what happens in real life when you try to you know make your own practice or make your own stuff then these are the things that, that you are doing you are crying in your bedroom because you think everything sucks and you can't do anything so if you have practice in that then you and it's ultimately pra- it's an insight in into your sort of working process, I would say. For example, my working process is that I get an idea and I think it's fabulous. It's amazing. And I'm so excited. And I think it's just the best thing in the entire world because at that time, it's a concept. It's not an actual thing. But then when I get into the actual practical part of it, then I just go deep into a hole. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't make this happen, you know, it's the worst idea in the world. But because education has given me an insight into this sort of habit of myself, in myself, then I know that this is a part of the process. And if I go through it, then I come out of it on the other end. 
completely. If you don't, if you're not sort of challenged by this in education, by this process, and by this sort of getting to know your own process, then you won't know what to do with yourself in the end. Absolutely. I used to tell my students all the time, I'm like, they're like, oh, you're the meanest teacher here. And I'm like, am I really the meanest teacher or am I simply teaching you to have a thicker skin and be able to take constructive criticism and be able to learn from your mistakes and like make public mistakes, you know, put works up in a class and make an idiot of yourself and then learn from those mistakes and make better next time. Like, that's what I believe that educational system is meant to do is is toughen you up so that you can then quite honestly like live as a practicing artist because good god knows that's really fucking hard totally and i think the key word there is uh, is constructive you know you have to be able to believe that when people are giving you criticism it is because they want to be constructive it is because they want to help you you know that's but that's practice also to be able to sort of Get over yourself and just take it and use it. Oh, it is. And I've run into many teachers who, and myself probably included at a certain time in my life, that was a bit arrogant about it. And then, but the, my problem is not the arrogant teachers. I don't mind them because you can kind of be like, well, they're just arrogant. You can write them off as just like arrogant little asses. But the ones that I don't like are the ones that coddle the students, the ones that sit there and go, oh, you're doing really well. I really like what you're making, even though they're making absolute shit. They're not learning. They're not actually getting better. But they said, oh, you I had this one that I worked with. She was the worst because all she did was coddle the students and spoon feed them everything instead of making them learn how to figure things out for themselves because that's another part that i think is incredibly important about like academia in general is it's not giving you information but it's giving you skills to be able to figure things out for yourself once you're out of school definitely and i think that this is this can be really challenging as a teacher because you see a person that's that's struggling and you really want to you want to help them. You want to be nice to them. You want to tell them that everything is going to be fine and they're doing great and everything like that. But that's in the end, that's not helping. Nope, absolutely not. I am a huge, like, what is it? I think it's the Socratic method of sort of teaching, teaching students how to figure out their own answers instead of giving them the answers. Right. I find that so good. Yeah, and just asking questions, basically. Just question after question that, you know, brings this sort of confrontation, you know, within the uh, the student. I know. But that's the thing is, is like, that's not that common. Like, I, again, I shouldn't be saying this, but I currently work for a university and they, they actually like changed the rubrics and the grades where so like an a, a like accomplish the goal used to be a C, now it's a B minus. So like the same criteria has actually gotten a higher letter grade. Mm -hmm. And I find that very unfortunate. Right. I think now recently there were changes within the Icelandic University of the Arts. So it's not really so much about grades. It's not about like, giving a specific letter or a number, but it's about giving them feedback, which I think is really valuable, actually. When I, when I was going through my studies, then the grades, I don't remember you know, but the feedback I do, and that helps. 
I, I only remember the grades when they were so bad. <laughs> like, I remember this one teacher, fucking ass of a teacher. He he got fired halfway through the semester, and so he gave all the good-looking girls in the class A's and all the guys F's. That's horrible. That's, that's it. That's like, it had horrible. nothing to do with. It had nothing to do with anything. Like, yeah. so, like didn't even look at what we actually did as far as the work. He just literally just gave all the good-looking girls A's and all the guys F's. Yeah, that's uh, that's not good. Good that he was fired. Well, sadly, he was. I don't know why a university would fire a teacher halfway through a semester either. <laughs> like that was probably not the smartest time to do that. But <laughs> yeah. Oh well. So be it. So, all right, your work. Mm -hmm. I have looked through the different things that you've done, and I've seen that you you did works. Let's see, you did stuff with like sound. You've done video. You've done internet based things. Like, but and you had an exhibition during COVID, right? Yeah, yeah, Hustlekar in the uh, the Reykjavik Art Museum. I'm fascinated because I didn't have any exhibitions, but that's because I make tangible products, but right. you did something intentionally for this kind of a, a situation. So like, how did that experience work for you? Like, I'm interested, like, how did ex art exhibition, quote unquote, <laughs> you know, how did it feel? Did you get like the same feedback and results that you generally would get in non-COVID times? I'm not sure if it's a, the same as, as pre or post-COVID, but it was great to be able to do something during that time because everybody was just dying of, of boredom. Or dying, yes. Yeah, or, or that, yeah, unfortunately. But it was great. It was sort of a continuation of a previous project. So I, I was part of an indie publication called Neptune, which was, you know, an Icelandic magazine about art and design. So it was me and a couple of friends that started it and, and did it for a couple of years. And so during that project, I became really interested in the sort of conversation or interview as uh, its own thing, you know, and as something that I like, I find it kind of cringy to say, you know, an art project, but, you know, but it is its own thing. It's a vehicle for ideas, basically. Ooh, that's exactly what this podcast is, but go on. Yeah, exactly. So I became kind of interested in that and how I could sort of integrate that into my own practice, into my own making of, of things, but not in this sort of traditional magazine context. So during Neptune, I got to know a philosopher called Timothy Morton. He came to speak for the art university as well. And during that time, I asked him if I could interview him. So we had this sort of hour-long conversation, and we have a lot in common. I admire his work a lot, and I use similar sort of themes and ideas in my own work. So we just had this sort of great conversation, and I was wondering what to do with it. How can I make this into, how can I mediate this, basically? Then this opportunity came up to exhibit for the art museum, and it was about public art in public spaces, basically. And during COVID, I th thought it was very sort of appropriate to use the internet to be able to just, yeah, mediate this for as many eyes as possible. 
yeah, presented it as this sort of web-based installation where I had this conversation in text form, but then also in sort of parallel to that, there were images that I made that sort of had this this relationship to the conversation as well. So they were sort of my reactions to the themes that were coming up. And it's called Nebulous Heaps. It's it's still up. And the thought is to uh, sort of expand on this so this can become a bigger platform for more conversations or more uh, writing or more visual-based research stuff. And yeah, so that's where I am. At the moment. Well, you said this opportunity came up. Was this an open call? No, no, no. It was a... An invitation. Yeah, an invitation. Yeah. How did you swing a museum inviting you to do an exhibition? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I don't know. It was just, uh, you know, I think I've been, you know, doing similar stuff here you know, using the sort of using the internet as a sort of platform and also as a as a as a subject as well. So I think it just fit within the uh, the context of the exhibition. And yeah, it's also a small country, <laughs> so it's not it's not a it's not the same as 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 the U.S. Right. So like in New York, that would never have happened. No, that's the good thing about being from a small country. Well, that's something I wonder about too. And I please don't take it offensively. And I've asked other people this, so it's just the sort of your perspective on this. But why stay in Iceland? Uh, I mean, you know, you want to be part of the arts world, let's say, you know, the arts, whatever, the industry, the fairs, the market, all this kind of stuff. And you could theoretically live anywhere in the world, but you've chosen to stay in Iceland. So, like, what's the thing that keeps you there? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> Well, and I, I did go through. And I want to be clear, I am not saying anything negative about no, Iceland. No, 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 totally. I mean, it's not, I have nothing negative to say. It's just, it's sort of a, it's very out of the way place. And so therefore I would imagine it's difficult to sort of be participating, quote unquote, like in the arts world from such a remote place. Yeah, totally. No, it's a very valid question. And I did both of my my studies, my undergrad and my master's in other places, in uh, New York and in Amsterdam. So I did also go through a time where I was not going to stay here. But I think during that time, I also realized that your world kind of adapts to the place where you are. I felt that when I was in New York, my world didn't get that much bigger. You know, it just... It was just in a different place. So I find that I can, I can be as productive and I can be as fulfilled and I can do exciting stuff here just as well as in other places. The only difference is that this is home, you know, and it's something that I care about. And I care about also participating in this place. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a mixture of, of, of things. It's about both just... Wanting to also be a part of a progression in a place where you feel home and that you care about, but it's also about just making space where you go, you know, so it could be here, it could be anywhere else, you know, it's the same sort of effort. I know I've moved a lot. I've moved, I think 19 times in my adult life. And so like 
readjusting to a new location is incredibly difficult. And to a certain extent, you always have to continually reprove yourself. And it's really nice sometimes to have like a home base to start from and to have built a network in that I, I'm missing in my career. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, I mean, that's also the problem with studying abroad for so many years and then coming back, you know, and having to sort of build that foundation from scratch. And that can, I mean, that can take time, definitely, and effort. It does. I, I'm currently in the Czech Republic, and I, like, I jokingly was talking to somebody the other day, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And they were like, hey, I said, oh, yeah, I'm new here. And they were like, how long have you been here? And I was like, three years. And they were like, oh, well, you still have seven more years before anybody will accept you. <laughs> I'm like, great. Yeah. So it takes 10 years before this culture will accept me as <laughs> staying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is also how I felt abroad, you know, when I was doing my studies. Then, which can, which is kind of a good thing and a bad thing because you start as a clean slate and you can sort of decide who you are and what you are about, you know. But yeah, I mean, it has its ups and downs, like we say here. It's pluses and minuses. Yes, it does indeed. I mean, it, it is great because you get to start again, but it's also horrible because you have to start again. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I know. All right. What about, so I know the in Scandinavia in general, there's a lot of sort of emphasis on like grants and writing grants and getting funding and all this kind of stuff. Is this something you do frequently? Yes. Yes, I do. And I mean, we have quite a, a good sort of support system here. We have visual arts grant and the, uh, the design grant, and then there's grants for writing. Yeah. And all sort of research Grants. Wait, you have grants for writing grants? No, no, no. Grants for creative writing. <laughs> okay. I was like, oh my God, I want a grant for writing a grant. That would be amazing. No, it would be amazing but because it's hard work to write proposals for grants. It is. So like, yeah. I mean, I try to write as many proposals and opportunities and stuff as I can, but like they're exhausting to do. Uh -huh. Like, from me now I'm, i may be unique but i think i'm sort of quote unquote sort of standard american style of thing we were not taught to like write a proposals in advance we were more taught like make artwork and then offer the artwork for an exhibition so like you create a body of work and once the body of work is completed then you put together a portfolio and you sort of submit it whatever mm -hmm. But it seems like the industry has shifted and it's now become more of a use your old body of work as an example of the quality of the work you do and then write a proposal about a project you want to make in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Then we also come back to the point of like being able to sell yourself. It's not about advocating for something that you have done and that you believe in and that you know is good. It's this sort of how can you present yourself in in a in a selling way, you know? Oh, I, I do. And it's also very different as well. Because again, in the United States, when we, I was taught to do this stuff, it was very much like be a cheerleader say like this is the the magnus opus mag most magnificent thing i've ever made in my career and you can be part of it by funding this kind of thing whereas here in europe it's more 
uh, humble and it's more just like factual, like I'm going to do this, this, and this, and it's going to express this idea that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which I think is easier for sure. It is much easier in many ways, but it's very awkward for me because like I'm a fish out of water here because like I'm trying to fit into this system that like I was not raised on. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very awkward to to not sell yourself. Like they don't want you to sell yourself. Like there's almost this thing of like, I even had somebody accuse me of being like arrogant American because I, I wrote something that sort of sold myself. Right. Yeah. I think is that a thing? Not. I mean, I think there's always an element of ha- having to sell yourself, but I think it's it's best when when you can sort of go some golden middle road, because it it's true that now you have to be able to sell yourself, but it's really annoying when it's when people do it to the an extent that is quite extreme, if you could say it like that, you know. So I th- I don't know. I think it's about some sort of yeah, it's about some sort of middle road. I do the these days like it's much easier in many ways to write your st- statements and grant proposals and things like this because they don't want <laughs> this is going to sound so good, like I'm going to sound like such a horrible person at the end of this but they don't want like the super high intellectual things that they used to want. Like I remember going into museums and I would read the, 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 you know, the, the text on the wall, the, the entrance thing and be like, I have no idea what that was said in that because it was like tons of big words and philosophical references to mythology and Latin phrases and all this shit. And I'm like, I have no idea what was said. It, it seems like that's not what they want anymore. Like they really want it to be more, engaging and personal and intimate and accessible uh, in a way that uh, is not the way I was taught. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which can also, I mean, you could argue that that's a good thing also because, I mean, if it's too inaccessible, then it's also just like a class issue, you know, then, then it becomes elitist. But you can't go kind of too far into the other direction because then it lacks content. I don't know. I kind of I believe quite strongly in not being alienating to people as a whole, you know, not sort of speaking into a very narrow group of people that can understand or that are into a certain kind of language. But I do think it's really important to not lose content or lose meaning in a sense. I understand, but I mean, inherently art is elitist because in order for people to have time, money, space, whatever, to either go to a museum or gallery or have the space in their home or the money to buy it, there's an inherent nature of elitism that comes in all of that. Yeah, but not always. If I kind of reflect on, for example, my master's program in in Amsterdam, there was sort of this point of creating a space outside of the institution, outside of sort of economic circles where you had to sort of, yeah, be at a certain level to access and sort of create this space that is not there, you know, that sort of invites other people as well. 
Yes, but again, like the gallery and museum, there's always that barrier to entry that a lot of people talk about that like some people are intimidated by it and all this kind of stuff. Like I hear this conversation all too often, which mm -hmm. I find hilarious because I find those spaces to be the like the least intimidating places. I, th I think cathedrals are far more intimidating. <laughs> we should put art into cathedrals well i guess it's already there but <laughs> i was gonna say there's art, there's tons of art in cathedrals my, my father does icon writing so like oh, there's wow. art everywhere yeah 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 it's it's tough though because like you want you want the most amount of people to have the ability to engage with your work on the one hand but mm -hmm. on the other hand, you still want to be able to get funded or purchased or, I mean, unfortunately, money drives all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. But I think, I think it's also good to sort of try to establish a way in which you can work where you don't have to rely on funding, where there is sort of an aspect of your practice that funds it even if it's in a sort of a small sense like I'm doing, you know, I'm trying to work as a designer to be able to sort of carve out a little space for artistic practice and then use accessible platforms like the internet to publish it. Then maybe you do have a tiny bit of freedom that you wouldn't have if you're uh, sort of trying to get funding from these institutions in a sense. It's a hard balance. I mean, in my entire career, only because I just sort of learned about this whole granting thing maybe like eight years ago, but in my entire career, I've only gotten, I think, two grants and only one of them was for my art. So it's not been part of my practice up to this point, but my God, now that I know about it, holy shit, I want them so badly. <laughs> Like, I'm like, oh my God, I can get people to pay me to do this thing that I've been like self-funding for decades. Like, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Is it, and is it accessible there yes. in the Czech Republic more so than in, in America? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, in America, it's a, I find it again, it's sort of a class system almost because like there will be the big ones like the national endowment for the arts the me big mega ones that are like millions of dollars of support and then the, and then and then it drops down to basically like local regional funding where they only give you like you'll you'll go through all this process and wait for months and all this kind of stuff tons of paperwork and reporting and all this for like five hundred dollars mm-hmm yeah. which it took you more than $500 worth of time to do all this fucking work. So it's, it's, um, yeah, there, there's like this super high echelon of, of, of funding for amazing, big, huge projects. And then there's just this, a wash of very little funding for, for very, for large amounts of people. Like it's just ridiculous. I, it's such a class system. It's so, so horrible. Yeah, and I mean, it's very capitalist also, because I mean, of course, most of the money goes into the big projects that draws, you know, the most attention. So it is. And they also they like rate them on things like 
footfall. Like, so like if you're going to have an exhibition, you have to have X amount of people coming through the door. Or if you're going to put on this theater performance, you have to have X amount of people in the seats and tickets sold and all this kind of stuff. So like, even if you do get funding, the funding is still reliant on footfall or, and, or like, uh, diversity or gender representation. So like, you know, 50% of your participants have to be this gender or this minority or this whatever. Like, so there's, they end up putting all these criteria on them. There are these quantifiable things that are very difficult to quantify. Mm -hmm. It kills me. Yeah. Well, it's a, it, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. That's the one that kills me is the, 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 the questions that they ask in these, like even in residency applications and shit like this, like they ask these, what I see as like unquantifiable questions. Like, you know, what do you expect to achieve with this? Like make something really engaging. Like, I mean, like it's, ugh, it's yeah, it, it goes back to the, to the point of being able to sell. <sighs> I know. And I wish it wouldn't go back to that. <laughs> like I want it to just be like, you know what I want? I want somebody to just give me unrestricted funds. It just basically just says, I like what you do. Here's $10,000. There. Mm -hmm. I would love that as well. I know, but nobody will do that. Everybody puts strings on it. Like, oh, well, you have to be a female artist or you have to be under 35 or you have to be, you know, you had to have been educated in the, the EU or like there are all kinds of strings attached to it. And then of course you also have to hand in receipts and all that stuff too. So like, it's just so much work. Yeah. It's, that's bureaucracy. You mentioned that you have a partner, but so are you queer, gay? I'm horribly inappropriate with my terminology. Please make sure I'm saying this right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, you can use queer or gay. It both applies. Or like, what What do you want? What would you want me to say? I don't care. Gay? Gay is fine. Gay is fine? Okay. Well then, okay. Has that had any impact on your career? Pro or con? Positive or negative? <laughs> I don't, it's hard to say because, you know, I don't, I don't have any sort of insight into how life would be if, if that would not be the case. But I mean, I look at it as a very positive thing. You know, I think it gives you a different perspective. And even if it would have an impact in a negative sense, I still would not care. I would no, I would care, but I wouldn't I wouldn't want it any other way. Because I think that sort of alternative perspective is in the end really valuable and it's an asset. I never I hope I didn't imply that you should have had it any other way. No. Did I? Okay, good. No, definitely not. <laughs> please tell me I didn't say that. <laughs> I never remember what I say during these. So I'm like, please tell me I didn't say something like that. That would be no, horrible. Totally not. Okay. It's a thing because for a lot of people, it does have an impact or some sort of is a barrier. It's really hard when you're in your own situation to know if that's the case. But I mean, it is the case for a lot of, for a lot of people. And I mean, especially queer people that are not white, for example. Oh, in certain countries, it's completely illegal and all kinds of horrible things. So mm -hmm. like, yeah, but, I mean, there are, there are many pros and cons to, well, there are pros and cons to pretty much everything in the world right now, except being a white man, gen, uh, but no, heterosexual white man. 
I think it, it is a con because it, it deprives you of having experiences and insights into the lives of people. You know, you can you can sort of observe, you can be an observer and try to understand, but you can never sort of associate. Yes, I am an outsider in many ways for sure. But in many ways, you're an outsider to my life. So there you go. There you go. Well, it, it's it's sort of it was probably a bad question on my part, but I guess the point was is like there are many opportunities that exist for people that uh, fit into some minority criteria. So whether it's race, gender, sex, age, even whatever. And so I was just wondering if if you've experienced any of those kinds of either opportunities or detriments. Um, no. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Okay. Well, I generally wrap up with two questions. Mm -hmm. If you've li have you listened to the podcast before? Yeah. And you know the two questions, depending on what episode you listen to. Yeah. <laughs> so the I generally ask for three artists that you're looking at that you think that other people should become somewhat aware of. I kind of have to mention this one exhibition of she i mean she's not contemporary and she's said but she has there is an exhibition with her work here do you live in Reykjavik proper yes i do see because i imagine if i was going to live in iceland i would want to not live in the city i mean the put to me like the point of being in iceland is to be out in the rugged nature i think this is sort of really common when people have a very romantic sort of idea of of iceland <laughs> I mean, I guess the question is, like, is that a, a, a good place to live? Like, I mean, you know, like, would is it a good life to live sort of out of the city? Or is, it, is, is Iceland in the city better? I think it depends on how much money you have and what you do for a living and if you can do it remotely. Okay, wait, which is more expensive, which is less expensive? Because I could imagine managing a property out of the city to be very expensive, but I could also imagine rents in the city being very expensive. So which is more expensive, which is less? It's definitely more expensive to live and rent in the city, but in the city, you have more resources as well. I think probably cost of living outside of housing is higher outside of the city, but housing is more expensive in the city. Okay. But yeah, it is interesting how foreigners have this beautiful romantic idea of Iceland, like the tundras and like the, the, the horizon, not seeing anybody in the entire horizon. But like, God, that would be a really difficult life to live. Yeah. I actually do this lecture in the, in the art university about sort of nation branding and how it has been sort of used to promote Iceland as this sort of artistic utopia and also how that sort of notion has been criticized by art and artists. And it really has to do a lot with this sort of romance in a sense, which is very connected to romanticization of nature as well. Well, it's also a very far off land and there are very few people from it. So it's somewhat exotic and unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an island. So is that idea that it's this beautiful artistic like 
place to be. It was that like created? Was that like an ad campaign made in like the 1950s or something? Or has it just sort of naturally happened that way? Not even in the 1950s. No, it was an it, it was it was an ad campaign created by the government after the financial collapse in 2008. So and it's still going. It's called Inspired by Iceland. And it was this sort of very deliberate effort of rebranding the nation in order to create tourism, basically. And it was this sort of effort to to rebuild what had been broken, you know, and both in terms of economy, but also in terms of image. Because in the in the past, before the financial collapse, we used to sort of base our image a lot on this sort of macho biking excursions. You know, the bankers, they were called, I don't know how to translate it, but you would say like excursionist, you know, a Viking in, in excursion. And then after the financial collapse, we obviously <laughs> realized that this is not going to work anymore. You know, so we created this or the government, you know, government institutions, they created this sort of softer brand, basically, that is based very much on nature and artists, sort of, and art. The face of the country became the artists instead of the Viking. And how was that received by people in Iceland? It depends. You know, it worked very well. <laughs> it created a tourism industry, basically. And it was very much like heightened by the volcanic eruption as well that happened in, I think, 2010, which if you are making a campaign like this is perfect that uh, this crazy eruption, you know, this natural force kind of happens just when you're launching, you know, it's been very much criticized as well, especially in, I think, academia and within the arts as well, because it bases its image on the arts without sort of taking into account what it is to be an artist. It becomes this sort of hollow image of what it is to be an artist here. And it becomes a bit infantilizing as well, because, you know, being an artist is not just about sitting and watching a, you know, moss and being really inspired. It's also just work, you know, and it's about creating a space for yourself. And it, it becomes very misleading in a campaign like this. Well, like I've seen a number of like the photo excursions that go to Iceland and they like, you know, take models with them and go out in the middle of nowhere and take a bunch of pictures and they're, they're fine. Like, but it's one of those things like I've never participated. Well, actually that's not true. I did participate in one of those, but I, I've, oh shoot, I can't say that. I have participated in something like that. Okay. I've only participated in one thing like that and it was extremely specific, but I imagine that like as a tour, if I were to go and be, be part of one, let's say one of these photo tours that goes to Iceland and stuff, it's not enough time. Like I, you can't just show up somewhere and just be like, oh, I'm so inspired by this and like make amazing stuff like right there on the spot. Like you need time. You need to experience it. You need to like, I would imagine you would have to be there for 
a couple seasons to be able to just like not only like see the landscape but experience how the landscape changes over time and things like this and then of course meet the people and have experiences there because when you go on those little tours they're just going to take you to the like sort of the most picturesque quote-unquote places but not necessarily the places that really suffice for your unique artistic vision but like whoever organized its artistic vision so it's like I feel like it's sort of a primer, basically, like an introduction to it, but they don't actually make really great works of art in doing those things. No, totally not. And also, like, just speaking of, you know, Instagram, how many of these images have you you seen? You know, it becomes, like, just... Too many. Yeah, too many. You know, I mean, it's fine, which is fine. I mean, I think it's fine that people take pictures and share them, you know, but it beca- it doesn't become this sort of amazing spectacle that you think it is when you've, when you're an outsider and you're a, you're a visitor basically. Well, I mean, there's also the point, like if you go through all this trouble to plan a trip and you go all the way up there and the weather's bad, <laughs> like, you, like you just don't get it. Like you, you know, so like if you just have bad weather, like the whole thing is screwed, but that's, you know, the risk you take. Yeah, exactly. But I, I mean, I'm also just really interested in this sort of idea of how we relate to landscape and nature, because I think it, it we tend to do it in a very romantic way. So it becomes sort of this, this sort of hollow image for us to sort of project our inspiration or our idea of being inspired. When you're in a place for some time, then you also realize that this landscape is not there for you. You know, it's not it's not there as your your canvas or the inspiration for your canvas. Like it's more complex than that, I think. Well, that's hard because, like, on the one hand, yes, if you're doing conceptual work and you want it to have meaning and have all this kind of stuff. On the other hand, like I'm thinking of, you know early 1900s landscape paintings that people want to just decorate their living rooms with. Like they don't mm-hmm. give a shit about what you're talking about because they just want a pretty inspirational landscape. So like yeah, it sure. depends on the context of what you intend to create. If you want to make decorative stuff, landscapes are, you know, very good, strong topics. But if you're, you want anything beyond decorative, then yeah, you, you just need more time with a place. Yeah. And yeah, I see your point. And I think I agree. I think just as a, as a simple notion, a landscape can be, uh, really nice, and I have landscapes here in my living room. But I, I'm also talking just in a in a broader sort of context, not as a, not exactly in within art making, but also just in our within our idea of how we are supposed to connect to a place. You know, when it's sort of rooted in this romanticism or brand making, or when we're sort of re- on the receiving end of a nation branding of this sort then I, I think it can become sort of hollow in a sense. It could easily become very hollow, yes, especially when the government intentionally brands the region as something. Like there's there's some it I really hate it when I hear about any sort of government or corporation or anything like this, basically any kind of large conglomerate like that using art and artists as a way to whatever make money draw tourism kind of things like because basically they're just using us 
like I highly doubt any artists really made any money off of that ad campaign other than the designers, the advertising consultants. Mm -hmm. No, totally. What, so what's the criticism that our academia has given to this, this whole ad campaign? There's one really interesting one by, she's an anthropologist. She's called Kristin Loftstotter. She talks about being trapped in cliches and she has an article called being trapped or trapped in cliches, masculinity within, I think, Icelandic entertainment material or something because, and she, and she's mentioning this inspired by Iceland campaign and how the entertainment in- industry kind of works in tandem with that effort. And they, so they sort of become this sort of intertwined force. There's this ad campaign, but then there are all these Nordic noir television shows that sort of heighten this idea, you know, and they show the nature in this sort of beautiful, but stark and dangerous way. These romantic ideas. Yes. Yes. And she's also criticizing that essentially this romanticism is the, uh, the male perspective. You know, we tend to associate nature with the female. So then this sort of making a spectacle of that is very connected to the objectification of the female, basically. I don't know how to respond to that. (laughs) I would have to read the article. Yeah. No, but I think it's an interesting notion, you know. It it is an interesting notion. I'm yeah, I mean, I should educate myself better on the nature of like male gaze versus and objectivity objectiveness and things like this. I should educate myself better on that, but I I'm not uh, knowledgeable enough to be able to even have this conversation, <laughs> I don't think. All right. So let's get back to three artists. So the first one is uh, an artist called Roska. She's Icelandic. She actually, she died in 1996. She has an exhibition now in a museum uh, in a place right by Reykjavik called Kveragave. And she was just this amazing character, really a sort of a revolutionary and a feminist. She lived in Italy for a large part of her life and created all kinds of protest-related art. And she was just, I think, a super interesting person. And yeah, so she's one of them. And the next one that I'm going to mention is actually my ex-student. She's called Elin Marco, and she works with food and design in a really interesting way. Recently, she had an exhibition about the relationship between eating and having sex, which... I thought was really interesting. And she created all these sort of uh, sensual food equipment, I guess you would say. It's not far off the natural part of it, actually. Yeah. yeah a, lot of, a lot of chefs actually say that anyways. But yeah. 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 So I think she's really interesting. And to end, I'm going to mention he's probably, yeah, he's better known than a lot of Icelandic artists. He's called Ragnar Kartansson, and he has also an exhibition here in the Icelandic National Gallery, which is called Sömarnott. And it's just a very beautiful sort of multi-channel video installation where people are, you know, walking and singing. And it just makes me feel good. (laughs) And sometimes that's enough. Yeah, it can be enough. 
All right. And my last question is uh, any advice for the next generation to try to potentially like avoid any pitfalls or issues that like you ran into in your career? Don't assume that anybody's going to give you anything. Try to make your own space. And if you don't feel like there is space for you, then just make it like do projects with your friends and start, you know, an art collective or an agency or a studio. Just make things yourself. Make it happen. Lovely. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and are as learning as much from this podcast as I am. I've learned so many things that I've done wrong in my career and so many things that I need to put a little bit more effort into for the rest of it. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. After all, I'm a professor. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank Rohan, Rohan Elt. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Ron, Ron Holhelt with two T's for their five-star rating and their comments greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.